When we consider the history of the nation of Israel, this is part two of, of last week's sermon, so I'm not changing the subject. When we consider the history of the nation of Israel and the history of Israel's sins, of which there were many, we, from the Old Testament, learn that their greatest sin, the one they fell into most frequently over and over again and the source of most of their sins, was idolatry. Now, Israel engaged in two kinds of idolatry. Sometimes, many times, there was simply an outright departure, a complete abandonment of the true God. Uh, Jeremiah says in chapter 32, they set their abominations in the house, which is called by my name, in order to defile it. And they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire unto Molech. Just completely abandoned the worship of, of the true God, of the Lord, Jehovah, and gave themselves over to idols, to Baal and Molech. But sometimes, many times, they did not simply depart into open, outright idolatry. Rather, what they did was they changed the worship of the true God to fit their own conception of what he ought to be like. Whether from the time of Aaron's molten calf, when Moses didn't come back from the, the mountain and, and the people cried out for Aaron to, to make a god for them, make the god that had led them out of the land of Egypt, whether from that time all the way to the time of the scribes and the Pharisees, when they would have professed to worship the Lord, to worship Jehovah, to worship the one living and true God. And yet, their Lord was, as Calvin would have said, it was like a wax nose, that you could twist it any direction that you wanted to. They made God to be how they thought he ought to be. Now, this is not just Israel's problem. This is the problem for every single person born into the world. All of mankind are born idolaters. There's not any commandment that we're not born to break, and we are born idolaters. There is no exception to this rule of depravity. One man, one man is strict. One man is hard and unloving and without mercy. And so he has a God who is a God of rules and laws, and, and, and you have to keep them and live and fail them and die. And he fills himself with pride and self-justification because he keeps the laws that he, that he uh, claims that God would have us to keep. But another person, another person is a different, different personality, different temptation, is a lover of pleasure, immerses himself in the things of the world. He has a God who has no rules, who has no judgments, who has no, uh, no requirements. Anything goes and everything will work out just fine in the end because God ultimately doesn't care how we live. So whether you're the legalist or the libertine, whether you are the fatalist or the free willer, whether you are the atheist or the polytheist, all of this springs from one root. Acts 7.41 uh, the, the sermon says, I believe it's Stephen's sermon, and they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice to the idol, here it is, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. 
They made a God that was like unto them, that was what they wanted, that was how they wanted God to be, and then rejoiced in their worship of Him. Well, we know that there is only one way, only one way to know the true God. As we considered last week, it is by His revelation of Himself in His Word. And so, when we come to this consideration of who God is, what God is like, we have to put away every preconception, every idea that we already have about what God ought to be like. Because one thing is absolutely certain, God is different from you. There is no exception to that rule in the history of mankind except Jesus Christ, who was the living and true God. So, God is different from us. God is different from me and from you. So we have to put away our preconceptions, and we have to be fully satisfied, completely satisfied in His revelation of Himself for who He is. And we must not corrupt that revelation to fit Him to what we think He ought to be like. We must not make a God in our own image. We must not make a God after our own likeness. We must not rejoice in the work of our own hands, or, I submit, there awaits these words. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Why? Because those persons who came to the Lord saying, we have done many mighty things in your name, had a God who was not the true and living God, a God of their own conception, a God of their own making, a God who they wanted Him to be. And so we arrive back by this brief introductory consideration of idolatry and the nature of it, We arrive back at the same doctrine that we began with last week. Sola Scriptura, the Bible alone, the Scripture alone. Now, last time we gave a very broad overview of some significant implications of this doctrine. What I want to get down to this week is more down to the brass tacks, more of an explicit understanding. What is it that we mean and don't mean? When we say sola scriptura is the first, the primary rule of biblical interpretation. What do we mean by this phrase, scripture alone? Well, last week we summarized it in these words. Scripture alone reveals to us doctrine and duty, truth and law, belief and obligation. To put it in the language of the historic church, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, a catechism is a question and answer for the purposes of instruction. Westminster Shorter Catechism, which was a, a, a combination document that went with the Westminster Confession, on which our confession is based, has this question in it. It's question three, in fact. What do the scriptures principally teach? The answer... The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God, 
and what duty God requires of man. So, more or less how we summarized it. What we ought to believe about God and what God requires of us. But this is a, this is a skeleton, so to speak, and I think we need some flesh and, and muscle. So, now we made, we made a number of claims last week about the scriptures as the only source of truth. Now, I want to narrow in the focus a little bit. Because with all of those lofty claims that I made and the broad way in which I painted, which was intentional, there is a natural question that comes up, an objection, if you will. Well, how can the scriptures be the only source of truth? I mean, is all possible knowledge contained in the word of God? I mean, I mean is everything that you can know contained in the word of God? I mean, on the surface of it, that seems, seems obvious. The answer is, of course, no. Because in this book, uh, for example, in the Old Testament, amidst these great stories of God's dealings with his ancient people, his ancient people, Israel, there amongst their apostasies, their departures from God, there amidst their victories, among the histories of their kings and priests, will you find the capital of Pennsylvania? Will you find the dates of the reign of Henry VI of England? Will you identify the first European to cross the Atlantic? No, you'll find none of these things. You will find neither the Magna Carta nor the UN Charter. It's not there. I mean... I mean, sandwiched here between the warnings and pleadings of the prophet Jeremiah and the messianic doctrines of Isaiah. Here, here in between Ezekiel's new temple and Daniel's ten kings, I submit that you will not find the chemical formula for table salt. You will not find an accurate description in detail of the flow of the circulatory system. You will not find the formula for the area of a triangle. You will not find the actions of antibodies on antigens or the proper method to administer CPR. In fact, is it not true that you will not even find the multiplication table? What about this New Testament here in these pages, with these profound expositions of the gospel by Paul and the teachings on true Christian holiness, John's heavenly revelations about the age to come and the necessity of love amongst the brethren, will we find practical information on how to tan leather? Will we find the rules for setting a proper tea service? Will we find a textbook on harmony and rhythm in classical music? Or the proper principles of the distribution of light and color in classicist painting? It is not there, brethren. In fact, virtually all of the world's historical facts 
Virtually all of the great scientific principles and discoveries of mankind, the time-honored and practiced customs and traditions of the world, the achievements of man in art and music and all of the aesthetic pursuits. In short, virtually all, virtually the entire accumulated body of knowledge that belongs to mankind is strikingly absent from the pages of this book. Why is that? Why are these things not here? These hundreds, thousands, millions of facts lost from the pages of Scripture. Where are they? Why aren't they here? Has anyone in the process of obtaining their advanced degree in the military history of Latin America, has anyone in that process found the eyes of his understanding being enlightened? That he may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Has anyone... Has anyone, while mastering the manners of a gentleman or a lady, as set forth in the books of etiquette from 1600 to 1900, has anyone, while mastering that information, found their hearts established unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father? When Paul said, We beseech you, brethren. We exhort you by the Lord Jesus that as you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. When Paul said that, was he in fact referring to the correct length and cut of sideburns and the palette of colors to wear? in each season to which he devoted so much of his instruction amongst the people of God. Has any child of God, for that matter, for writing music with contemporary harmonies or failing to follow Itten's theory on the seasonal palette in dress colors, has any child of God failing in these pursuits found themselves convicted of sin and enduring chastening from God and thus partaking of His holiness and yielding the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Why not? Why why is it that when I say these things, it seems patently obvious It's ridiculous because by definition, all of these things, 
they are not found in the scriptures because by definition they are immaterial to the great purposes of the word of God. They are not found there because they are not needed there. They are no part, not a small part, not a big part. They are no part of the revelation of who God is and our service to Him. Will these things make the child of God, the man of God, complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work? All possible knowledge is not contained in Scripture because all possible knowledge is mostly irrelevant to the purposes and ends and goals of the Word of God, which is to teach what a man is to believe concerning God and what, listen carefully, what duty God requires of man. What is then this content of the scriptures? I mean, I mean when we turn there, what are these these things, these questions, these these issues that are raised, these answers that are given? It is doctrine and duty, spiritual truth and moral law. Consider, is there a God? Who what is he? What is his moral character? What is man? How did he come into being? How did we get here? What is, what is my moral condition? Why, when I look in my heart, do I find so easily hatred, evil, un, uh, unthinkable, unspeakable things? Why does man all across the world throughout its entire history seem to seek to hurt and kill and destroy? Where did this come from? What is the relationship between God and this evil that I find inside me and in the world? What is the relationship between this God and me as a moral Spiritual person. Am I a spiritual person? Or am I merely a collection of atoms and when I die I'll turn into dust and pass out into non-existence so that nothing matters? Let us eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. Is there meaning in life? Is there purpose? Is there a future? Is there justice for these crimes that I see committed daily? Is there any hope for this desperate condition in which I find mankind and my own self to be? Has God, if there is a God, left us to perish in this sin and misery? Does this God, if there is a God, care how I live? If he does, how ought I to live? Should I please him? Does it matter? Is he capricious like these ancient deities of the Greeks and Romans? Hardly better than a man? 
Is he holy and righteous? What is holy and righteous? Is there such a thing as sin? What is sin? How is it to be avoided if there is? What's the consequences of it if I don't avoid it? Is there a way of life that will destroy me forever? What way of life will bring me happiness? What is happiness? Will God judge this sin if there is sin? Why is it that I I look around in the world and I see people living however they want and they're rich and prosperous and they have everything? And then I see a person denying himself these pleasures and goals and trying to be what seems to be a good person and he suffers and men hate him and revile him. How should I behave in my relationships? Does it matter? How I treat my wife, my husband, my children, my parents, the man I meet on the street? Shall I rob him or shall I help him? If I'm prosperous, why am I prosperous? Well, why do I have riches and money? If I'm poor, why am I poor? Why, why am I in this condition? How can I live in contentedness? What is contentedness? What obligation do I have to, to men, women around me? Do I have any obligation? Are these not the real questions? Are these not profound considerations to which a, a person could devote his entire life to the contemplation of them? Are these not the questions to which men have devoted their entire lives to the contemplation of them and apart from this book come up with nothing and yet continued to realize that they are the great questions? So, what knowledge is contained in Scripture? All. All that is necessary for us to know of who God is and how to live fully unto Him. You remember we talked last week about 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for evidence, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be complete, completely equipped for every good work. This, this is a passage of which it is almost impossible to mine the depths of its significance. It seems so plain on the surface of it. But once you start to get into it, uh, you, you find that you could have a ten sermon series. <laughs> Don't worry. Just a few words. All scripture is profitable for doctrine, teaching. This word, fascinating word, used 21 times in the New Testament. 19 of them are by Paul the Apostle. And 15 of those uses of his 19, so what is that, 3 out of 4, are in the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus. Instru- uh, his instruction to the teachers of the church, telling them to occupy themselves with this doctrine, this teaching. What is he talking about? What is the content of this? What is this teaching that the scriptures are profitable for? Well, I submit that we should look at the book of Romans. 
it is, in essence, the summary of Paul's gospel when he went anywhere as he, as he, uh, to, to, to explain to the Romans in that case what it is he taught. Three chapters about man's moral condition and his inability to be saved by his own righteous works. Two about uh, the obvious uh, justification by faith. Two and a half chapters about the nature and the method of sanctification. Three and a half chapters about God's sovereign predestination and foreordination of all things and its implications. Four chapters about the broad principles of Christian living. How to behave in the world, how to behave in the church, how to behave towards the civil authorities. Summarized in this one blessedly simple thing. Romans 13.8 Love one another. For he that loves another has fulfilled the law. Paul takes uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, wraps it up in one sentence. Love one another. For he that loves one another has fulfilled the law. The scripture is profitable for teaching. For this teaching about the great doctrines. The answers to these great questions. It's profitable for proof, for evidence. He says, I know some of you have reproof. I disagree with that translation. The word is used commonly many times, not so much in the scriptures, only one other time, but uh, in other usage to mean uh, the evidence or the proof of something that's based on an argument or a discussion. Uh, let me flesh out what that means. When Paul would preach the gospel, especially amongst the Jews, he, he, we think of the gospel as something proclaimed, like we would just come out and you know, stand up here and say, here's the gospel, boom, 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 points one, two, three, four, five. Not at all for Paul. Paul went into the synagogues and four times it says he reasoned with them out of the scriptures. It's a word that means uh, dialogue, uh, dispute even, debating. Is the idea of an interchange, the kind of thing where you come with arguments. You come with arguments and you say, now this is true, these, these things, here's my first statement, and why is it true, here's why it's true. And you give them proof. And, and what is it that he uses for proof of his arguments? He says, 2 Timothy 3.16, the word of God. Paul, as his manner was, went into the scriptures, uh, went into the synagogue and reasoned with them out of the scriptures, opening and alleging Here's the content that Christ needed to suffer and rise again from the dead and that this Jesus whom I preach to you is Christ. This is what the Bible is useful for to persuade the Jews and the Greeks to reason with the Jews to reason of righteousness and temperance and judgment to come here. Here in this book was his evidence, his, his arguments, his crucial proof for this. The scripture is profitable as the very evidence of these great matters that come before men when they contemplate the most profound issues of life. And then it's useful. It's useful, he says, for correcting faults. This is a word It means uh, a person was in an upright condition and they fell down. And, and, and correction is taking the person who fell down and putting them back up straight. Somebody trips over, you go over, you help them up just like this. There they were upright, they fell down, you pick them up. That's what the scriptures, he says, are profitable for this. He's, of course, talking about moral correction. Sometimes people run well and they fall. The people of God fall. And when they fall, he says, the usefulness of the Bible is to, is to pick them up, to put them back where they ought to be. 
We see this in the scriptures. Read the book of Galatians. That's all it is. The situation with, with Peter. He rebukes him to his face. Out of what? The word of God. For, for Peter dissembled in Galatians. The very book of Galatians is, is essentially a correction of the Galatians. Who began well in the gospel and stumbled into righteousness by works. And Paul, out of the scriptures, using the word of God, tries to correct them to an upright estate. Of 1 Corinthians. Is the same story over and over. The book of Colossians, a church that was becoming influenced by proto-Gnosticism, by uh, uh, wisdom, the, uh, the idea of uh, that, that sanctification was by the, achieving these progressive heights of wisdom. And one of the ways you did that was to deny yourself or immerse yourself in licentiousness. Uh, all kinds of false doctrine from Eastern religion invading the church of Colossae. And Paul goes to the doctrines of the truth. The scriptures are useful for taking the people of God, taking the man who has fallen down and raising him back up to, to the upright position. This is what they're useful for. And then there's this marvelous, marvelous summary word. Uh, this, this instruction or training in righteousness. Oh, I think my voice is changing. <coughs> the... Uh, this instruction in righteousness, it's a word I talked about last week. Beautiful word. It means the whole process by which a child is, is taken from his tiniest estate and is raised into manhood uh, through, through instruction and, and admonition and commands and reproofs and even punishments. The whole process by which a child is, is, is brought to responsible adulthood. This instruction. This, this instruction in righteousness. Are we not the children of God? Is it not the clear doctrine, doctrine of scripture in, in multiple places that we are like newborn babes when we are born again? And we must be raised, as it were, to spiritual manhood. And what is the tool for this? Peter says, the sincere milk of the word, desire it. Paul says, it is the word of God. God breathed scripture to take us and give us this instruction that we might know the right things in order to be mature Christians. To give us this discipline to train us in how we should conduct ourselves. Even to chastise us in punishment. Punish us when we, when we cross God. When we walk out of that way of right behavior. This is the role, the work, the purpose of the scripture. It is, it is exemplified in the New Testament by all of the epistles. All of the instruction to the people of God. Christ says, teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. All of, this, all of this instruction in the word of God designed for one purpose. To take us from being little infants blown about by every wind of doctrine. Easily swayed by the sin from which we, we were so recently snatched out of. To train us in righteousness. To train us in understanding that we might love and serve God. This, these are the great questions. The great knowledge. That is contained in the scripture. The great purposes. All that is necessary for us. To know who God is. And how to fully live to him. I want to I talk about an implication of this. How many times have you heard this statement? It's kind of popular statement amongst 
evangelical is kind of a kind of a little bit sappy, but he this the Bible has the answers. The Bible has the answers. Uh, you know, it's you see it on billboards or little little things that people say, the Bible has the answers. Do you know what? That's wrong. Because we've just seen a lot of things about which the Bible doesn't have the answer. You know what the Bible has? The Bible has the questions and the answers to those questions. This, I cannot stress to you how important it is to grasp this principle that the sufficiency and the authority and the inspiration of Scripture means that the Bible has the questions and the answers to the questions. Let me, let me explain why this is vital. We live in a permissive society. I don't think anybody's going to deny that. We live in a society, anything goes, do what you want. Uh, every man does that which is right in his own eyes. Basically true of, of our society, of Western society as a whole. Perhaps it's true of every society in the history of the whole world fundamentally. It's certainly true of every man's heart. There is a great temptation when we confront a permissive society to make everything a moral question. Out of our reaction to the permissiveness of the society around us. We're disgusted with how people live, sickening how people immerse themselves in sin and wickedness. And so we, we have this, this response, this reaction, and suddenly everything becomes a moral question. This is wrong. Here is what it leads people to do. It leads people to come to the Bible demanding an answer. Demanding an answer to questions that they have formed outside of the revelation of God. And when you believe that everything is a moral issue, and when you believe that the scripture teaches morality, then you demand that the Bible answer every question that you could possibly have. And when you demand that, see the Bible doesn't, doesn't answer, only answers its own questions. But when, it, when you demand that, it leads inevitably, I promise you, it leads inevitably to the twisting of scripture, to the fundamental leading tenets of Phariseeism, to heresy and bondage. This is, I'm, I'll show you this in a moment, but this is my assertion. This is the inevitable fruit of demanding that everything be a moral issue or anything be a moral issue which God has not plainly stated as a moral issue. This is the inevitable fruit of it. Now, there's a second, there's a second problem that goes along with this. Sometimes we have an issue that we come to the Scriptures for that is a moral issue. Hundreds of things we could think of. But sometimes people demand of the Bible a specific answer. But the Bible may only give a principle, an uh, overarching principle, a leading idea 
to answer the question. Perhaps it's something the Bible does declare to be moral and then answers with a principle. In fact, I would submit that that is the normal way that the Bible answers the moral questions that it raises. But some people find that unacceptable. Some come to the scriptures because of the nature of their own Christian experience, because of the nature of their own conscience, their predispositions, uh, teaching they've had about the, the importance of precision in our behavior. They come to the Bible demanding a specific answer. And they find that the Bible teaches that something is a moral issue and they demand a specific answer and it leads to the same things. Scripture twisting, Phariseeism, which I am primarily defining in this context as adding to or going beyond the word of God with new unwarranted commandments, like the scribes and Pharisees did, binding heavy burdens on men's back, and it leads to heresy and bondage. The Bible sets the questions, the questions of truth, the great issues that we must confront, and the questions of moral behavior, what is right and wrong. The Bible sets the questions. The Bible then gives the answers on its own terms. And finally, thirdly, in our triangle of importance here, the Bible sets the priorities of the questions and answers. You see, there, there are some things to which the Bible, some moral questions, some issues of doctrine, which, which the Bible does answer. But it answers them with a certain weighting, a, a, certain, uh, a certain order, a certain level of importance. And when... You can mess up any of these things. You can, you can mess up the issue of the Bible asking the questions. You can mess up the issue of the Bible giving the answers on its own terms. And you can mess up the issues of the priorities of the scripture. And when you mess up the issues of the priority of the scripture, here is what happens. You have unbalanced and aberrant or sick Christianity. An interesting fact in the study of the Christian church is that almost every major heresy did not result from open false doctrine. The seedbed of heresy in the, in the history of the Christian church has been a misplaced priority, which when followed has led as its natural outcome damnable heresy. If we, if we fail in this matter, if we fail to, to allow the Bible to ask the questions, to answer the questions its own way, and to set the priorities, we will have a downward spiral with no bottom into pharisaical casuistry. What is casuistry? It's picking out little issues and, and debating them as if they were the most vitally important question ever asked by mankind. I'm going to give you a list. It's a list of questions. Stay with me till the end. Are buttons on clothing lawful? 
Or are they actually a sign of pride to be avoided by the use of hook and eyes? Must socks worn by men be darker than their slacks? Or is it not true that slacks themselves are a sign of conformity to the world's fashions to be avoided by the use of church-approved pants? May a girl wear more than one set of earrings? Or is this proof of a problem with self-acceptance? Or is the wearing of earrings at all a mark of immodesty and sinful adornment worn only to ensnare men? Must we only drive black automobiles? Or is it not true that owning an automobile at all is conformity with this world? Is living in the city sinful and a sign of worldliness? Or is it not rather the truth that living in the country is an abandonment of evangelistic responsibilities? Is cleanliness not merely next to godliness, but a part of it? And in fact, one of the most important evidences of godly living? Or is not cleanliness an obsession with the outward to be avoided for the sake of spiritual gain and a concentration upon the spiritual truths of God? Must pants... Must pants which have belt loops be worn with belts? Or is it perhaps that belts themselves are a sign of pride, so we must wear pants that do not require belts? Shall we breastfeed our children on demand? Or is not that course of action coddling the sinful self-interest of that little viper? And schedule feeding is the only godly course. Is music in seven-eight time demonic and contrary to God's creation order? Or is it not true that learning and playing musical instruments is a sign of sensuality and vanity and the pursuit of this present world? Should a woman's head covering be made of lace or a plain cloth? Or will a hat suffice? And what should be done to that woman who refuses to wear a covering chosen by the church? Is excommunication the only good thing for her? Is, is choosing colors which enhance your skin tone and a hairstyle which complements your face, in fact, a fundamental part of standing alone for God in the face of a degenerate culture? Or is not the wearing of patterned and colored clothing itself a sign of worldliness, so that women ought to wear only one dark-colored dress of a sober pattern approved by the elders of this church? Is men's beard wearing, you got a complicated one here, is men's beard wearing a sign of rebellion and a mark of a desire to affiliate with the radical, God-hating elements of society? Or is not clean-shavenness effeminacy and a mark of a desire to escape God's order and the way in which He created men? 
I could multiply this list virtually forever. Now, in spite of your disbelief, I took every one of these from an actual position set forth either today or in the past by a major denomination, ministry, or group of professing Christians. Every one of these, every single one, was considered an important moral issue worthy of the most intense discussion and study. And in fact, in many cases, a matter over which to condemn those who failed to see the vital importance of your pet question. How, how should we respond to this? For shame. For, for shame. Should we not be shocked, outraged, and astonished at the Word of God being reduced to petty trivializations? The end of this road is a snare. The end, in the end of this road, the astonishing fact is that when you have gone down this road for a number of years, or in the case of a church, a number of generations, you become utterly unable to recognize the pathetic position in which you are in. You become utterly unable to recognize the devastating abandonment of biblical priorities. You become utterly unable to recognize a soul-corrupting earthly-mindedness, an obsession with outward minutiae that would rival the greatest scribe of the Jews. You become utterly unable to recognize the elevation of your own commandments to the place of and over the word of God itself. I tell you this as one who has been on this road, not, praise God, recently. But I know this road. I know this walk, this path. Perhaps many of you here do. Men stand outside picking in the trash. And if they would raise their eyes just like this, they would see a field of diamonds. Truths so precious would be right there in front of their eyes. So holy, so God-honoring, that men have spilt their blood to maintain them and defend them for upholding them. How is it that we can offend God by preferring trifles 
to his finest gifts? How is it that we can mock him by portraying the Lord God of heaven as so low and so vain and so obsessed with pathetic, meaningless, earthly things as to be morally concerned over whether your socks are lighter than your slacks. There is a battle for the souls of men raging. Men perish for lack of knowledge. And we are jousting with windmills while the Saracens sack the city. We see a drowning man. We offer him water. We see a starving man. We give him fine clothes. There is only one escape from an Alcatraz of sensuality. There is only one way off the trash heap of earthly mindedness. There is only one path through the maze of self-righteousness. There is only one end to the sad legalist's vain crusade. Scripture alone. The questions, the answers to the questions, and the priority order of the questions. The Bible and the Bible only. Would you know who God is and what God cares about? And what righteousness consists in? And what is the path that will light your feet to the way of happiness and blessedness? Here. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we pray that you would forgive us for so easily so easily are we ensnared by folly, by emptiness, by vanity. So easily do we turn aside from a pot of gold to a rotten egg. Lord, we, we feast on worms when we could dine on your precious fineries. The greatest feast ever offered. We clothe ourselves in rags and call them beautiful robes when you stand before us with a coat of many colors 
eager to grant this to your children. Lord, forgive us, for these things are sins. They are not mistakes. They are not errors. They are not accidents. They are not... They are not anything so easily explainable. They are terrible, inexcusable sins against you. Lord, we thank you that finding ourselves in such a state, we need not shudder at your judgment. We need not flee from a sword to be dipped in blood. But we may come to you. We may come to you as a merciful, kind, forgiving, loving, God-embracing of foolish, idiotic, numbskulled sinners who with the truth plainly in front of us can barely see. We give all glory and honor to your Son, Jesus Christ, for He is light, and He is the light of men. It is He that you reveal to us It is his perfection, his astonishing virtue, his incredible saving work, his unimaginable sufferings for those who were worthy of nothing but wrath and curse. It is through him that you show us what it is to love the brethren, what it is to love our neighbors ourselves. We pray, Lord, that you would make your word precious to us in its great questions, in its wondrous answers, in its remarkable revelations of priority and importance. For when we see these things, then and only then do we begin to reflect your glory in a fallen, corrupt, stained, depraved, awful, sinful world. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us with the knowledge of Christ. For in Him and through Him and unto Him and by Him and for Him are all things in heaven and in earth. All glory, praise, honor, and majesty belongs to him, our marvelous Savior, who would save us from death and ignorance and would give us life and understanding in the blessed contemplation of God. In his name and for his sake we ask it. Amen.